And greetings to all 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom, Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. Bless the name of Yahuwah. You have tuned in and it is the Sabbath. What a blessing. We are in Revelation in the Hebrew, Gileana, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And we're starting that today. If you like this teaching, give us some thumbs up. You guys in the chat, give us some thumbs up and edify one another. We love the community that's building there. Remember, do subscribe to the channel. It really does make a difference. And you can hit that notifications button and you may get a ping in your pocket in the middle of the week if we do upload something unscheduled. And we're going to dive in, but before, but before we do, I want to thank all of you that do donate to Torah to the Tribes. It truly is amazing we're able to broadcast to the nations. I was just speaking with the brethren this morning on the Shabbat Fellowship, and it is truly amazing. We've been able to reach not only through the online platform here, with the broadcast, but through the connections that we have now with the Zoom platform, which is the Covenant Calendar Club on Friday night, the Sabbath group on Saturday morning, and now with the Torah Youth Worldwide of over 2,000 people a week just through those electronic platforms, which is truly amazing. Amazing to me the outreach that's happening, and it's all digital and that's happening because people are supporting the ministry and enabling us to invest in the equipment and technology to be able to do that and even here in studio I hope you can see the dramatic improvements that are happening and we are truly blessed not only with the sound but the cameras the lights it's amazing and even the snacks Levi, my son, is loving those, as you may have heard last week, Mr. Snack Attack himself. Do you want to come up here and talk about the snacks, or are you happy right there? Let's delve in. We are in Revelation chapter 3 today. We're going to look at the dead church, the dead assembly, and we know it. There are dead assemblies all around. All What's that? My wife just chatting me up from the second row here, so uh, she needs some snacks too. So anyway, we're going to dig in <laughs> to Revelation chapter 3. And the Malak, the angel of the assembly in Sardis, write, These things say he who has the seven ruachim, the seven spirits. The seven spirits, of course, of Yahuwah and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name and that you are alive. But you are, in fact, dead. Be watchful and your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which doth remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before Yahuwah. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast, hold fast, and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. 
You have a few names, even here in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his heavenly Malachim angels. This is powerful. And in summation here of our opening few verses, verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach, the Spirit, says to the assemblies. This is the opening of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, particularly the admonition here is to be vigilant, vigilant, because what do we see with the assembly of Sardis? There is a lack of vigilance. They cannot. They're asleep at the wheel. Everything will go on tomorrow just as it did yesterday. We are fine. We do not need to be... That's a conspiracy theory. Oh, don't give me that. I'm happy in my life. Don't accost me with truth, biblical reality that goes against the grain. I don't want to wake up from my slothful state. How dare you? How dare you question me? What is this feasts and festivals and Sabbath? And What do you mean, lobster? I can't have lobster with garlic butter. How dare you assault me with those kinds of things and wake me from slumber? A lack of vigilance. That was really the epitome of Sardis. And we can go into the political spectrum and we can talk about our southern border and how people are climbing over the wall. And how on earth would I tie that in with Sardis? Well, I'll tell you how. Because I will tie that in. Our southern border, lack of vigilance, climbing over the border walls, affronting us with all kinds of civilization implosion that we're seeing in here because we don't even have a lack of demographic vigilance. Look at what happened to civilizations civilizations in the past through demographics and see if that's happening to us today. And how can I tie that in with climbing up walls and climbing over borders? Well, let's see. Because there is an admonition that is overarching here in the scriptures about Sardis. So let's look at a little bit of history of that assembly of Sardis, its geographical location, and some of the history of what was going on at that time, and then see if we can bring that forward into our very day and make some connections. I believe that we can, because we all need to be what? Vigilant, watchful, even if that means that you have to change your life And you need to get out of the culture and get into the word of Yahuwah to do it. So that's the overarching message is vigilance today because Sardis had twice fallen to an enemy. 
And how did Sardis fall to that enemy? Not once, but twice, because of a lack of vigilance on the part of the inhabitants of Sardis. In 549, before the Common Era, Cyrus actually captured the Acropolis by deploying... See, I told you I could, I could tie it in. How did Cyrus actually capture the Acropolis in Sardis in 549 before the Common Era? He got himself a little climber, he did, that climbed up over the crevice, scaled the crevice in one of the near perpendicular walls of this mountain fortress. That they thought that they were impenetrable. They thought that they were just, nobody would be able to get in. But Cyrus, he employed a climber to, of course, penetrate what they believed, the inhabitants believed as they were asleep in slumber, something that was impenetrable. Now, late in the third century before the Common Era, Sardis was again captured by the very same way. You thought they would have learnt the first time, but again it was captured when a Cretan by the name of Lagaros found a nice slender crack with about 15 other men and he ascended and opened the gates of Sardis from within, allowing the armies of Antiochus the Great to overpower the rebel Archaeus. And this happened in 216 before the Common Era. So why does Yahusha address them for a lack of vigilance? Because of the history of Sardis. They were so secure in their mountain fortress. They believed that they were impenetrable. That everything would go on as it did yesterday, so it would be again tomorrow. And they even neglected to secure their borders. They neglected to secure their fortresses, their foundations. They were asleep at the wheel because they had been living in the life of luxury and therefore they had their borders penetrated by people climbing over the wall and it happened once. And they didn't learn from those mistakes and therefore it happened again. Therefore, it happened again. Sardis was considered alive, but really, it was at the point of death. Are we in a parallel universe? How is the health of America? How is the health of the European Union? How is the health of the United Kingdom? How is the health of South Africa, I do ask. How is the health of the nations at large? We appear alive, but are we, as we are scattered in the nations, housed within nations that are in fact dying, whose inhabitants are no different than the inhabitants of Sardis? I suggest that we find ourselves in a very, very similar situation. Yet, we who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. That's what makes us distinctly different.
We have to wake up. People need to wake up in this nation and other nations, the nations that I have listed, of the perilous position that we are in fact in. Repent, make teshuva, and turn back from the precipice because we are on a cultural precipice if you cannot see it. And we need to restore the former fire, otherwise we will be visited with unexpected judgment. That was the admonition to those in Sardis, and the judgments are coming in the book of Revelation. These are very, very severe. Now, do the majority of the assemblies seem to fit this description today? I would say that they do, if you're really honest with yourself. The majority of assemblies seem to fit the description of Sardis. Do our nation seem to fit the description of Sardis. They certainly do, whether it's South Africa, the United Kingdom, the European Union, or the United States of America. We have the majority of the inhabitants that aren't paying attention to what is happening, even though it is clearly visible to those who have a blood-tipped ear. So what happens? People become complacent. And your consciousness becomes defiled by the world and you become defiled by your surroundings. There's an old Bible saying, as in history, so in life, to consider oneself secure and fail to remain vigilant is in fact to do nothing but to court disaster. And of course, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the 12th verse where it is written, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But Yahweh, he is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tested above that which you are able to withstand, but will with the temptation or the testing also make a way for you to escape into the wilderness. For a time, we see this in the prophecies coming, that ye may be able to bear it. So the whole apocalypse is about those that are awakened that are put into the place of safety for 42 months, a place that is prepared. And this we will see in the upcoming chapters. But Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the world, in the ancient world, in fact. Today, are we housed in Mystery Babylon, one of the most, one of the most powerful cities? which is reminiscent, of course, of ancient Babylon. There are so many parallels with this chapter. Yet we see with Sardis that was, in ancient times, one of the most powerful cities. But by the time of the Roman period, it's best described by historians as thus. A relic of the period of barbaric warfare which lived on its past prestige rather than its suitability to the present period. Now think about that. Think about the nation where you are housed in exile today, 
and I'll re-quote what historians say about Sardis. A relic of the period of barbaric warfare which lived on its past prestige rather than its suitability to the present period. I mean, a four-year college degree nowadays prepares you to be a barista at Starbucks with $100,000 in student debt. Because that period of college education in the 50s and 60s, that is no longer what you get when you go to college today. Today, if you enroll in a four-year college, you will be educated in liberal propaganda by socialists who have a tenure. And you'll come out with all kinds of modern ideas that are divorced from historical fact. Because historical fact is all an assault according to modern liberal agenda. So our world has shifted dramatically. The past prestige with a present period that is unsuitable to the economic growth and sustainability. Is that how we live today? Oh, you can see it all around. A past prestige with a present period that is unsuitable to political jurisprudence. Do we live in that today? What happened to the laws of this country? What happened to the Constitution? What happened to those laws at the inception of America? What happened? Everything's shifting. Look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and make teshuva. Repent. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you shall know what hour I will, and you shall, excuse me, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, of course, this is relating back to the temple times as well and the order of service, but this is applicable to our time today, even though it was written to those in Sardis. Sardis, again, was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. It was the most immovable of cities before foreign powers. Foreign powers had come and it was immovable. It would not bend. The Greeks, they had huge problems with subduing Sardis during the early colonization period in Asia Minor. Huge problems. But in 546, before the Common Era, Sardis, like I said, fell to Cyrus. And it was the seat of, of course, the Persian governor. But later it became part of the Seleucioid kingdom, then passed to Pergamum, and then that passed on to Rome. In 17 of the Common Era, Sardis suffered a massive, massive earthquake, only to be later rebuilt by Emperor Tiberius. So this had a very strong history in the region that was very well known to our hearers that this text was written. Now, 
the first ever silver and gold coins in world history. Think about it. The first ever silver and gold coins in world history were struck right here in Sardis, as well as the first ever wool to be dyed. So you can see now why this is in the text. Now, to make a comparison, look at where we're at now in 2000, presently 2020, and think about the asleep of Sardis and how they were not aware and vigilant. And think about the people a hundred years ago. What was it a hundred years ago? It was called the Roaring Twenties. In the Roaring Twenties, they weren't vigilant. They weren't vigilant at all. I'm going to tie this back with the gold and the silver. They weren't vigilant. The market was up. Everything was doing great. Their culture was thriving, so they thought, even though it... So it really had the appearance of being alive, but it was decadently dead within, corrupt to the very core. And here we are now in 2020, and I suggest to you that we are in the roaring 20s. We are in the roaring 20s. What do I mean? The stock market last year, it's phenomenal. Everything's great. Even Trump tweeted something about, well, how is your 401ks, everybody? You should be thrilled. Should you? I think not. Well, the S&P 500 was up. The Dow 30 was up. It was a banner year last year on the stock market. Did you not know that? Where have you been? Have you been asleep? You've got to get into the stock market. There was a 22 to 29% growth last year on the market. Everything's amazing. Not. But that's what it would appear, right? If you got into gold, we're talking about gold coins. If you got into gold in 2007, you were laughing. In 2007, there was a 32% increase in gold. Well, that shows the stock market up a bit, doesn't it? And guess what? People that are invested in gold, they actually could control it. Whereas if you're in the stock market, you don't have control. You think you do, but that, that control is really in the hands of a few. It's totally centralized. If you got into gold in 2008 and 2010... It was a 28% growth that year. Phenomenal growth. Last year, gold grew 18%. Well, that's not as good as the Dow Jones and the S&P 500, which was 20, between 22% and 29%. But we haven't even touched on crypto. Bitcoin last year in 2019, 87% growth. 87% growth. Sounds phenomenal. Well, not if you were in in 2017. Because if you got in on 2017, you would have lost 70%. It was a 70% drop in 2017. So crypto is a totally volatile market. You could go up 30% or down 30% on your investment in 24 hours. All that to say this. Sardis was in the very same position that we are in today. Everything seemingly looks great. But in reality, it was dying from within. I don't care whether it's the stock market. 
I don't care whether it's the S&P 500. I don't care if it's 401ks. Centrally controlled financial management is mismanagement. We have had that proven to us in 2008. And what we have right now is decadence that is unsustainable and it is just a matter of time before judgment comes upon a nation of people that are ill-equipped, ill-prepared and unable to see the times and the seasons within which we live. And just as Sardis' final undoing was by those climbing over the border, not once but twice, our final undoing will be by those climbing over our southern border, a demographic shakeup which will affect this country into an economic crisis. You see that in the West Coast cities with all the homelessness, that then the taxpayer has to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to service master to come and clean up the filth that's left on our streets as people are attacked on their way to pay the taxes in their jobs. It's a mess. And this is what was happening in Sardis. They were dying from within. Yet outside, oh, everything appeared to be great. It's a bumper year, right? It was a banner year in the stock market last year, even so much that Trump is tweeting. But what we see, as in Sardis, which of course was the first ever place where silver and gold coins were struck, the first ever place where wool was dyed, but within all this power, within all this prestige, it still came under the most severe denunciation of the seven assemblies. The most severe of all of them. Look at it. Look how Yahusha addresses the seven assemblies. But these guys, they get hammered. Why? Because it had so completely come to terms. Listen. It had come so completely to terms with its pagan environment that it only appeared to have an outward appearance of life, but inward, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead. I suggest to you that our nations today are in that very, very state. It's very severe. Verse 4, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You see, as the center of the wool garment dying, Sardis, the people there, this statement would have had very profound meaning to them, would it not? It was their economic development was based upon the gold and the silver coins that were struck there, and the wool that was dyed there. That was what was going on with the people. That was their common, everyday, active work. But it could also connect back to the temple traditions. Because what we would find in the temple is you would have the evening and the morning sacrifice. And the high priest would have a duty priest that would go into the temple and his job was to stay vigilant 
all night long and ensure that the coals on the altar were hot, that they were kindled, that the altar did not go out. All night long, he had to stay awake. And he would be, of course, his garments, many people don't know this, but the priestly garments, when they became ashen and soiled, the women who were on duty in the temple, the maidens, would take the soiled garments and they would shred them and they would bind them and turn them into the wicks for the menorah and then they would be in charge of giving the priests new unsoiled garments. Now track with me here because this whole teaching is about vigilance. So the high priest would often come in like a thief in the night to see if the duty priest on duty was awake and attending the altars, being on fire. Are you on fire? Because if he comes and finds that we're not on fire, then we will be cast out. So you better be on fire for Yahuwah at all times. Be on fire. Let your faith be authentic and let your light shine and burn those sons of... You know, but that's what I'm saying. We've got to be on fire because if the high priest comes back like a thief in the night, like the high priest would in the old days, and he found the priest asleep, he would take the fire pan, he would go over to the coals, he would get some of those coals off of the altar, and he would shovel them in the dress of the priest. And his garments would be on fire, he would strip naked and would run out of the temple bare, naked and ashamed and his whole family would be publicly humiliated and dishonored within the community because he was a fraud that had caused devastation to Israel because if the temple fires go out, then the sacrifice cannot go up in the morning. But remember the women, the blessed women who had the duty of ensuring that those garments remained unsoiled. And if they became soiled, then they would replace them with brand new, without spot garments. This, of course, points to Yahushua. And then they would take those soiled garments and they would rip them into shreds and they would make them into the wicks of the menorah. And the boy was born, the lad in Bethlehem. And he was placed in a manger in swaddling cloths because Mary, his mother, was one of the women who attended in the temple. And her job was to make sure that the priests were without spot, without blemish, because ultimately Yahushua would come through her because Yahweh had chosen her, that she would be the vessel that would bring the one that would ultimately be able to exchange garments. That's the only way that we will get to see the Father is by taking off our own dead works our own soiled garments and replacing them with the garments of Yahusha that we will be unspotted before the Father. And of course, Yahusha was wrapped 
in unblemished, without spot, perfect swaddling cloths that were, of course, meant for a high priest, but of a different order. This Yahweh is perfect down to every single detail. Every single detail. And the King Jimmy, we, we miss it. We miss so much. So the audience would have known this. They would have known that Miriam was an attendee of the temple. They would have known all of the traditions and the accounts of how many losers the priests were that were asleep at the wheel. They would have seen and heard in history the testimonies of families that got driven out of Jerusalem because one of the descendants fell asleep on the watch. They would have known, of course, the history of the wool dying in Sardis. They knew all of this, and we lose the power of the prophecy today because it's divorced from its biblical context. But it comes forward into our day and age because we live in a parallel universe, and Yahuwah is in charge of all history, and Yahusha stands at the end of history in its full eschatological consummation. That was a lot to come out of my mouth. And I didn't actually fumble my words right then because I've had a little few fumbles today, but I'll have a spot from um, my water bottle. No sponsorship today. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name from the scroll of life. Because Yahuwah has a divine ledger. And the divine ledger is what comes into view here again. Just like we see the divine ledger with Moshe, with Moses, because he used the very same phrase here in the infamous book of the covenant transgression point at that golden calf breach. It comes, of course, this phrase comes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. It is written, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, Moshe said, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. So the context of Revelation 2 is Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf breach. Because ultimately, this is a transference of priesthoods, a transference from soiled garments of the Aaronic line into the pure garments of the Malkizedek. Are we ready to transfer? Are we ready to exchange garments? Are we ready to exchange priesthoods? Or are we still going to cling to everything of Judaic tradition rather than biblical reality? These are the questions that we have to ask because it does connect to the book of life. The book of life is a register of all who hold citizenship in the believing community of faith. We are not of this world. Look what it says in Psalm 69 and the 28th verse. They that hate me without cause Mine enemies, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, think about it. If you erase something, there's a nice space for you 
to write something back in. But if you blot something out, it is forever blotted. There is no second chances. There is no rewriting in. You have a blot mark. It's not that you were erased from the book of life. It is a blotting out. It is a severe finality. There's no coming back. There is no second chances once you have tasted of the son of glory. And how many times do we see today people vacillating around the truth of Yahushua? You're in or you're out. There's no second chances here. To blot out means no way to have a change of heart. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it is written, And at that time, what time? That time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble. It's going to be such a terrible time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time indeed, that the time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the very book. So the book of life lists the entire, think about this, the book of life lifts, lists the entire human race from Adam and individuals that don't accept Yahusha, they are blotted out. This is the divine ledger. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his heavenly angels. Let's, let's camp on this a little bit because... I used to be an elder, as you know, at Calvary Chapel. And I used to be part of the whole system where every Sunday before lobster, because we used to go to Red Lobster afterwards and have like pastoral meetings because, of course, why not? All the elders had to go to the side, you know, because you were a part of that too. And we had to be there ready for people to come up and confess with their mouth <laughs> that Jesus is Lord and get saved. And they're, oh, we got 67 people were saved on Sunday. And this is what we did, right? And then we'd have a, a meeting about it in the middle of the week. Well, how many people did you pray? Oh, I prayed for this. Oh, this. Yeah. Let's camp out on that because once I started reading the Torah, I started to go, hang on a minute. I don't know if that's what this means, because I started to look and see, well, hang on a minute, that person I prayed for last week used to be married to that person. But how come they're no longer with that person, but they're across the aisle with that person? Now, what? And, and I'm an elder, and nobody's brought this to my... Has anybody addressed this? Oh, Matthew, you're so judgmental. Well, I, I just wonder, I mean, see? And they eventually get pushed out when you start to ask those hard hard questions let's talk about the greek word and i don't mean to freak you out or greek you out but there's a greek word to confess and we're going to delve into it we're going to track it back to its hebrew origin and we're going to see what this confession really means does it mean repeat after me this nice little canned prayer that we developed back 
1652. Is that what it means? No. Exo melegio, to confess. It's connected to another Greek word that sounds similar. Homologio, to confess, which is found in Romans, the book of Romans specifically. And of course, like I said, this was our Calvary Chapel Sunday closer. This was how we would close service on Sunday. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I alluded to it, now I'll quote it. That if thou shalt confess with thy... I'll do it in the traditional King Jimmy. Sorry if this offends you. That, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him up from the dead, thou shalt be saved, O thy wicked, filthy little sinner. Confess! And off they were. Oh, it's a And you'd be like, it's all right, you did the confession. But what does it really mean? Three things. Number one, to confess. Uh, Number two, to believe. And number three, to be saved. That's what we're going to look at. Confess, number one. Let's look at the confession. Number one, the confession is, of course, homo logeo. Homo logeo. It comes from the Hebrew word nedar. Nedar, which means to take a vow. Noon dalit resh. And nedar, to take a vow. It means word, action, and deed. It is a movement. It's a cyclical movement. It is not linear, and it is not stationary. This is the shift now from the Greek, which is linear, homo logeo, it's stationary, to now it goes back to its Hebrew origin, nedar, noon, dalit, resh. That's different. It's no longer Greek. It's no longer linear. It's cyclical. It is a cyclical movement that continues to roll forward into the kingdom. It cannot be stationary. It cannot be linear. It is a nadar, noon, dalit, resh. Word brings forth action, multiplication of deeds, by their fruit you shall know them. Does it start with word? Yes. But the word brings forth an action, which then births forth fruit. And it rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls into the kingdom of Yahuwah. This is the Hebrew origin of a confess. Word, action, and deed. It does not mean, Matthew, 20 years ago at Calvary Chapel, it does not mean repeat after me these words. Homo means what? One action of word and deed. One action of word and deed. That's what homo really means. Now, the prophet Jeremiah gives us a clue, but it's an inversion. So we'll look at it inverted, okay? Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15. You turn there, and I'll set this. 
Jeremiah 44:15. We're going to look at the inversion so that we can understand what this means. Now, we're going to see vow in word and deed turned upside down. Instead of it being used here in loyalty to Yahweh, we're going to see the house of Judah's obstinate refusal to submit to the power of the word of Yahweh in the mouth of the beloved prophet Jeremiah. Now, notice, though, the action word, we shall not hearken, here in the text is the Hebrew word, Shema, Shema, which means to hear intelligently, to hear intelligently, often with implication of attention and obedient witness. It's very important. So as we delve into this text, which is an inversion, admittedly, but you're going to see what it really means by working it backwards. It's a vow. You're making a vow to confess beyond all question. It is not just acoustic, excuse me. It's not only acoustic, and it's not mental assent. It is a confession, a vow which is born witness to. That is what our faith is about. Did you make a confession? Did you make a vow? And has it been bore witness to? Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, they answered Jeremiah, verse 16. Look how stubborn, stiff-necked, and obstinate they were. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of Yahuwah, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven. So what happens when you don't follow through with your vow? Punishment will follow. Meaning, if you give Yahuwah lip service, with Jesus, and you don't vow your life, there is going to be a worse punishment. The Bible says that those that do such a thing will be beaten with heavy rods by the master himself. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like my G. Well, that, that, that's called the rod of iron. That's called his Malkizedic scepter, because he's going to come back for his own and also chastise those that just gave a lip service that didn't actually vow with their life and bear witness to him. It will be, in fact, sad to say, and this will upset some people, a worse punishment than the heathen who never vowed in the first place. A worse punishment than the heathen that never vowed in the first place. I would rather that you were 
cold. Never even taken the vow. Never even given me lip service. Of course, I would much rather that you be my own. That you had made a vow. You had put it into action. Word and deed, and you are on fire for me. But they that are lukewarm, that just gave me lip service, I do not know them. I would rather spit them out. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. The Lord of that servant will come in the day that he hopeth not, and the hour that he knoweth not. You see how this ties in with the narrative of Sardis, the thief in the night. We're now looking at a master and his servants. That's what the narrative is about. Is Yahushua our master? Are we his servants? This is talking about, this is a parable, if you will, of Yahushua and believers. But this is now targeting those that gave him lip service. The Lord of that servant will come in the day that he hopeth not and the hour that he knoweth not and shall separate him and shall appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. They go to the same place. And that servant who knew the will of his Lord, he heard it every Sunday. He heard all of those sermons for all of those years. He even had the Romans 10 prayer put over him by an elder at Calvary Chapel, but he didn't follow it forward. Or she didn't follow it forward. Didn't put it into action, didn't put it into word or deed. And that servant who knew the will of his Lord and prepared not himself and did not according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. This verse has, is always skipped over in the church. Always. This, this, is, this is an affront grace but it's a biblical reality let's look at number two of what it really means to confess to believe is the word pisteo pisteo and it comes from the hebrew word shema and it means to put one's faith in with the implication that actions will follow pisteo connects to the hebrew word shema okay And then let's finally look at the third, saved. And there are many different functions of salvation. There are many different functions and various forms of salvation. And everyone wants to go to, oh, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Well, there is none in heaven but the Son of Man who sits at the right hand of the Father. Nobody, nobody has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man that hath descended. Everybody else that's passed, that is dead, is in the grave awaiting the resurrection. So no, Auntie Beatrice is not sitting in heaven with hallmark cherub angels. I know that's what they say at funerals, but it's simply not true. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, And whether we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation being worked out in enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Is this talking about salvation eschatological into the kingdom of heaven? No, this is talking about saved from the power of sin. This is not talking about the eternal state. 
I have been saved from the power of sin. I was saved from the power of sin on August the 6th, 1996. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly when it happened. I felt the Holy Spirit coming to me and I was saved from the power of sin. I am not yet in the eternal state, though I live as if I am. I have not fully attained it. I must work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Am I secure in the blood of the Lamb? Of course, with a surety. But I have now a responsibility and a charge. This is a true confession. Philippians chapter 1 verse 19. For I know that this shall turn into my salvation through your prayer and the gifts of the Spirit of Yahushua the Messiah. Look at that. Look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. I love this. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Nobody's going to work it out for you. You're going to have to struggle for it. You're going to have to wrestle for it. It is faith in action saves from the power of sin. And it bears proof to the coming eternal state. That's the key. Our life should bear proof to the coming eternal state. We look for that inward goal. Faith that produces this saving word based work from the power of sin. Let me repeat that. Faith that produces this saving word-based work from the power of sin saves you from the penalty of exclusion from the Atid Lavo or the Millennial Kingdom. That's what James chapter 1 and 2 is about, which is why Martin Luther had a major problem with it and didn't want it in the canon, if you will. Whereas faith alone saves you from the penalty of being cast into the lake of fire, the eternal state. There's a difference. We have to look at this. We have got to be victorious because to be victorious in this world, you have to continue with faith in action. Otherwise, you're going to be works unworthy. We are not saved by works. Heaven forbid such things. But works are action that verify that our belief is authentic. But you are saved alone by the blood of the Lamb. But a true confession it is in action. It is moving toward the eternal state. Okay? That's what gives us the strength to endure. That's what gives us the strength to endure. I'll finish up with this verse, because this is a short one, because I'm going to make this a two-parter, so I don't go on too long. Chapter 10 of the book of Matthew and the 32nd verse, it is written. I'll finish up with this. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess 
also before my Father who is in heaven. That is the testimony of the saints. Let us not be like Sardis, but let us be vigilant people. Sardis was asleep. They were not aware of the times and the seasons in which they were. They were so fat on their laurels of gold and silver and dyed wool that they did not look from the vantage point that they had. They thought that their culture would continue to be prosperous. I suggest to you today that we live in the roaring 20s. We truly do. A hundred years ago, they thought that everything would go on as before. We were even in the gold standard. We don't even have that backing now. That has been removed. Like I say, the increases in gold in 2007, 2010 were astronomical. But now we're being told, well, look at the market. It's up 27% last year. Well, that's controlled by a few, which means it can be imploded by the few. So we live in a very, very, very volatile time. Is it as volatile as crypto where you can gain 30% in 24 hours and lose 30% in 24 hours? You can make 80% in a year, but if you get in on the wrong year, you could lose 70% or more. That's decentralized. You have the control. You have the power. But at the end of the day, all of this stuff will just be full of moth, like a moth-eaten garment. The real, real treasure is through the nadar, the confessional vow that then brings forth an action because we're looking for the eternal state. But we are secure that we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Let's see if we've got some questions from our online audience. All right. Okie dokie. <laughs> this is fun because you never know what you're going to get. Oh, all right. We are in the chat. In the chat. Let's see if we got some questions and then see if we have some questions here in house. Now, this one is from Thomas Hughes. Thomas, hi, Shabbat Shalom, Thomas. Context means so much to understand the word. Amen, Matthew. Okay, all right. That was great. That was a statement. That wasn't a question. So I think I'm just getting these screenshots. So let's try another one here. This question is from the spanner. Oh, no, no, no. That means it's from Mario Salerno, who has a spanner by the side of his name. Oh, because, all right, I'm getting it now. That's because Mario is, is the wrench. Why is he a wrench? Does anybody know? Not a wench, a wrench. Because, oh, because I think Mario's, oh, okay, he's in blue. That means he's an administrator on the chat. Oh, so he's a tool. That means that he can switch people on and off. All right, okay, question from Mario the wrench, the spanner, who puts a spanner in people's works if they're naughty on the chat. 
Where did you find the information regarding Mary being an attendant in the temple? I love when people ask me those questions because half the time I can't remember where I found it. I've got, I'm so blessed to have such a phenomenal resource library at home. Now, we used to put that on the old website, but um, we don't do that anymore. Where did I read that? I can't tell you. Most probably Josephus. Okay, we're in-house. Apparently the book of Mary talks about it. Okay, so I haven't got the book of Mary at home. That sounds a bit suspicious. Sounds a bit of catholoco. But I, I read it somewhere, so therefore take it with a pinch of salt. Could have been Josephus, most probably Josephus for me. I've got all of his works, and um, I thoroughly like to read that stuff. Um, you know, geez, there are a lot of those extra biblical books that are history. Some would say, you know, that um, it's scripture. I totally disagree, but I've already taught, taught on that. Let's have a look at another one here. All right, we'll go back here. Sorry, I'm getting used to this here. Next one. Okay, this one's from Fulton Full Gospel Church. Cool! Ah, let me do my American accent. Cool! Are y'all dispensationalists? No. No. But I do tell you what. We do identify with biblical Israel. That's not a replacement of Israel. It's an identification of the Israel of Elohim, Galatians 6.16, not the Israel of the new world order. Different than dispensationalism. But that's a good, good question. But we're happy that we've got some church folk tuning in, and I hope... We can keep you and that you don't get offended. You've got to have some thick skin around this place, you know. All right. Let's have a look. This one's from Tracy Williams. Shabbat shalom to Tracy Williams. <clears throat> Is Mount Sinai chronological Deuteronomy 9, 9 to 29 retails events? Still places the breach after the first tablets. Deuteronomy 10.4 plus 5.22 says the sanctuary priestly duties part of the book of the covenant. Malchizedek priesthood changed to Levi after the breach. Wow, that's a deep question. Phenomenal question. Love the scriptural links there. We've got Deuteronomy 9.9 through 29, Deuteronomy 10.4 and 5.22, but Deuteronomy the second law, a retelling of that which went before. It is the telescope has been retracted. It is a condensed view of all that has gone before. It is not chronological. It is a telescope that has been contracted, okay, that then accounts for all that has gone before. But it is not a retelling in a chronological narrative. And that is where Judaism and the Messianic movement goes array. 
And we've dealt with this many a time. That's why, and I don't believe that all things church are bad. When they named it Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy, that was a good name. Yes, in the Hebrew it's Devarim, words. But if you really want to understand, it is a retelling of all that came before in a contracted telescope fashion. And if you want to see the telescope opened up, then you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay, that gives you that big view. So you see that a lot within the scriptures. That's a good question. I like that. We could spend the whole afternoon just on that one. All right. I think I went ahead here. All right, let's see. This is from Sarah C. Could the white garments in verse 4 be linked to the righteous acts referred to in chapter 19, verse 8? Brilliant. Brilliant analytics right there. I really do think so. And ultimately, you know, it can be linked to Malachi too. It's about the preparation of the saints and how we will go from this world into the eternal state. And those that present themselves with their own works, with their own garments, are but filthy rags and they will become ashes under the feet. They will not be able to withstand the fire and they will become ashes under the feet of the righteous, those that have exchanged their garments with the garment of Yahusha, which of course is what it's all about. This is amazing, right? This one is from Fault or Behave Yourself, Matthew. Okay, temptation comes at the door knocking from Fulton Full Gospel Church from the administrator. Tell us your take on the rapture. Oh, behave yourself, Matthew. Well, I would just say that um, Second Thessalonians is a very good foundational text for us to see that the dead in Christ shall be raised. That's the rapture, if you will, be caught up. And then those that remain will be caught up with them at the coming of the master. There is only one coming. There's not like two and like a mid coming. There is going to be a catching up before Yom Yahuwah, the day of Yahuwah's wrath that is poured out on a Yah-rejecting society. But there's one thing that we are promised, and that is tribulation. That is assured to us. There is no escape. There is only a tribulation, and then we are all brought forth before the outpouring of wrath. Now, if we were to track this with the biblical feasts, you would see that this all comes into fruition around the time of the full festivals. If the day of Yahweh's wrath is poured out on the Day of Atonement, the 10th of Tishri, then there would be a catching away of those saints 
right before Yom Kippur. But that means you've got to go through the tribulation, that hot, dry, barren summer. Then you would hear the last trumpet at the Feast of Trumpets. Then there's going to be a 10 days of awe, of a weeping and a gnashing of teeth before there is the realization that it is now too late. So how do I see the rapture? Very different than those that wrote the Left Behind series. So hopefully we still have got the administrator from the full Fulton, full gospel church on the chat because we're really happy that there are people that are waking up because I, again, myself, I do not despise my beginnings at Calvary Chapel and neither do we despise the Fulton Full Gospel Church administrator and are blessed to have you a part here and you don't have to agree with everything that we believe because many, many of the, the um, biblical truths are taught in the churches today as people are waking up and we all need to help one another come to the fullness of the revelation of the gospel. So we're just happy to have the gospel church with us this afternoon. Hello, Modesto Gaza. We've got Modesto and he's going to ask a question. Can Greek be trusted all of the time considering their society was so degenerate and idolatrous? Consider the three definitions of love. Isn't this similar to how homosexuality uses love as a shield? Well, that's a great question, Modesto. I think, of course, that I would agree that you have to be careful with the Greek. Now, I believe truly from my experience that 98% of your translation problems in the New Testament can be cleared up through the Greek and the use of employing the Septuagint and connecting the, the translations of the Septuagint back to the Hebrew. I don't believe that you need to get too worried about it. I have been able to correct so many of the um, mistranslations, and there's not that many, to be honest with you, in the King James Bible. I know I have a good old time with the King Jimmy, but there really aren't that many big problems. A lot of the problems come that we end up buying this Thomas Nelson study Bible with all the blooming commentary on the bottom. Okay? If you just bought a King Jimmy with no commentary and a concordance, you're not going to have too many problems if you then employ the Strong's numbering system and the use of the Septuagint and tracking it back to the Hebrew. I'd say the 2% problem that you do have with the New Testament, especially when it comes to some of those things like, I believe it's, we spoke about this last week in private, Second Corinthians, I think it's 10, you know, where it says, all things lawful are for me, which, you know, sounds like, oh, I, can, I, I you know, you know no, all things are lawful for me, it says, right? All things are lawful for me, meaning I can do anything I want. No, actually, if you remove the grammar from the Greek, because there is no grammar in Greek, it actually says, all things in the law are for me, but not everything edifies. Meaning, everything in the Torah is for me, but not everything in the Torah is going to edify me. Some things are more edifying if you're a priest, if you're a woman, if you're married, if you're single. So you have to apply the Torah correctly. Then it goes on to say, 
If you go to somebody's house for dinner in the King Jimmy, don't ask any questions and eat whatever is set before you. Well, that sounds kind of dodgy, doesn't it? That doesn't make sense. If you remove the grammar from the Greek, it says, if you go to somebody's house for dinner, eat nothing. Ask questions for conscience sake. Then once your conscience is satisfied and you feel good about it, then proceed. And isn't that what you would do? I do. If I go around to somebody's house and I'm not familiar with them and they're not in, I don't know what they're up to in the kitchen, I'll be like, oh, could you pass the sour cream? Now, does that have gelatin in it? Oh, no, that doesn't have gelatin. Okay, my conscience is good. I'm going to have the sour cream now. You see? So that is, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. That note makes no sense. Remove the grammar from the funky monks that inserted grammar into the text. And it says, go, if you're in the meat market, you need to ask questions until your conscience is feeling good, and then you proceed. If I go to the butcher, I'm going to go, well, excuse me, now, did they um, shoot that cow with a submachine gun? Or did they, um, how, did the, how was that cow slaughtered? Um, okay, is that rabbinical? Is that non-rabbinical? Oh, is that organic meat? Is that not? And depending on your station and how your conviction is according to the word and your maturity level or orthodoxy, once your conscience is seared and feels good, then you proceed. And that is Acts chapter 15, isn't it? So again, long-winded Matthew. Um, sorry. Modesto, I hope that answered your question. That was, how did I get off on that when he was talking about the Greek? Now I'm Greeking you all out. Let's try another one. Oh, hang on, hang on. Push the wrong button. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's a good question. This question is from Alma Gordon. I am studying Romans. In chapter 13, you mentioned the word Metatron. Who is Metatron? Well, Metatron, now again, you see, I'm always growing as well. Metatron was a word that I came uh, across back in my studies many, many years ago, and it definitely does have rabbinical connotations, so take it with a pinch of salt on the commentaries. But Metatron comes from the guardian of Israel. In rabbinic sources, that's the expectation, if you will, of the role of Messiah, who will be the guardian of Israel, the keeper of the gates. So, in ancient rabbinical commentaries, Metatron is the Messiah or the guardian of Israel. So, those in the early assemblies would have been familiar with the rabbinical commentaries and applied Metatron to the work of Yahushua, who is Galatians 6.16, the guardian of Israel, the keeper of all of his children. So, that's where that comes from again. 
Take it with a pinch of salt. I'm growing, I'm developing. I used to be a lot more rabbinical, and nowadays I don't trust that either. So it's all a question of growth, isn't it? So um, I think back in the past, I used the word Shekinah, right? I don't believe that at all. I think that's a total bunch of mystic nonsense. But back then, you know, that was a big word that was used back in the Christian church. Oh, the Shekinah glory. It's really Shekinah. But that isn't even a biblical word, okay? It's something that comes from a lot of this occult magic that got imported to the rabbis in Babylon that got exported to the rabbinical commentaries that ended up in the messianic movement, which I was a part of. I don't use that word right now, or at all, I should say. Nowadays, I would use what the biblical word is, is tifereth, glory, right? Yahweh's manifest glory. It's not Shekinah. It's a bunch of pagan nonsense. So again, we have to take that with a pinch of salt. Let's see what else we got. Oh, I got a lot of stuff coming in here. We're going to be here all night. Oh, there's so many good ones here. All right, let's talk about circumcision. This is from Christopher Wellendorf. Shalom, Shabbat Shalom to Christopher Wellendorf. Why are there instructions for circumcision in Leviticus if the Israelites didn't perform circumcision in the wilderness? Excellent question. Circumcision, of course, is inception originally. It was the covenant entry sign given to Abraham. Entrance sign, the token of coming into the Book of the Covenant. After the golden calf breach, the covenant was broken. It could no longer be entered into. Therefore, they stopped circumcising because they knew, well, what's the point of circumcising into a covenant that's broken, especially now that we can't enter into that covenant? So that's why you had Levites and a whole generation of Levites walking around, carrying the ark, that weren't circumcised because they knew that it was a moot point. There was no covenant to enter into. So what would the purpose of having a sign? It would be like a man and a woman, heaven forbid, being divorced, and then the husband or the wife going into another person. They can never go back. Not after they've done that. Not after they've gone a-whoring. The golden calf, if you will. They can never go back. So what would be the purpose of the person wearing a wedding ring? A sign of a token of that marriage, which is absolutely broken, that they can never go back for. It's kind of not worth using the sign because there was been a betrayal. But we come to Joshua chapter 4, and circumcision is reinstituted and reclassified now as not as a covenant entry sign, but as a land token sign. It's a land token sign, which is why it appears in the Ezekiel and the Revelation of the 13 scrolls. 
because that was a constitution that was offered to the princes of Israel as they were in exile. And part of that was that they would have a return to the land. Thus, the land entrance sign would be part of it, but they rejected it. So now on the other side of the golden calf breach, the rejection of Ezekiel's message and the redemptive work of Yahusha that returns us back to the covenant, we now have a token sign entrance into that covenant. And as Paul tells you, it is the circumcision of the heart. It's bigger. It's better. It can be tested as real. So that's all that to say this. Let's get on with another question here. Let's see. Hmm. Oh, let's go here. There's a question from Andrew Scott about the olive trees, but I'm not going to answer that, Andrew, sorry, um, because you're going to have to wait till we get to that particular chapter of Revelation. I don't want to get ahead of myself, and I want to do a full teaching on that, the olive trees, of course. That's a very, very great question regarding the identity. Ah, this is from Chain Break. Chain Break. I'm having a hard time with Romans 13. He says, Our government are murderers. How are we to submit to this government? Well, we're to be of a different government. Check out Torah to the Tribes, Romans chapter 13 teaching. And I believe I go into that a little bit because we are to come out of Mystery Babylon. So definitely. Definitely check out that teaching, um, Romans chapter 13, specifically um, from Torah to the tribes there. And we'll take one more question. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. What have we got here? Oh, the Libby tube. Here's a good one. Who are the redeemed? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, if our souls stay in the grave. Oh, that's a great question that, again, I'm not going to answer for another couple of weeks, but I better answer it because that one is a fabulous question. Libby does a great job. Thank you, Libby, for tuning in this afternoon. But uh, she'll make sure that I do now answer that. So hold me accountable for that one, Libby. This is a great one. Who are, I know, who are the redeemed in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 and 10, if our souls stay in the grave? And that is it for today. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Questions, comments, I think we buzzed them. Of course, we'll have a couple here. Um, let's pass forward the microphone. If someone comes up to you and says, I want to give you the 
ironic blessing, what would you do? I'd take it. I like, and I'll take any blessing that's biblical wherever I can get it. That's okay. That is okay. Because I understand and know where I'm at in Yahusha, and it's a biblical blessing, and that is a good blessing. Good blessing. It's a good thing. So thanks for tuning in. And if you have lasted this long through all of those questions, please give us some thumbs up. Really does make a difference. Subscribe to the channel, and we'll connect with you, Yahuwah willing, next Shabbat live here at Torah to the Tribes. Shalom.